So we are traveling through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is in, starts in Matthew 5 and goes uh, through Matthew 7. It's one of the greatest messages of all time, but also it's one of the most misunderstood uh, scriptures ever taught. And I think uh, reading as much as I have, there's a few different summaries. People have different takeaways when they talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, One commonly, people think, well, it's just another list of rules. It's just another list of rules on how somebody could possibly get to heaven. Uh, You could look at this and say, man, man, it's just a proclamation of world peace. Some people could even say, hey, this doesn't even apply for us today. And I'm sure everybody's heard that Jesus just said some cool things, right? Well, it's literally much more than all those things. This is the living word of God. It is actually God. He's actually, Jesus is actually setting the record straight for us here. This is why it's the greatest message of all time. Um, Whenever we look at a set of scriptures, we always want to look at the intended audience. Matthew, being a tax collector, was uh, speaking specifically to the Jews. So the people that were in attendance were, were highly educated Jewish leaders and then common people like me and you. Well, I'm sure there's some people that are way above common, but common person like me. Um, Pretty much Jewish leaders, rulers, scribes, and Pharisees. Um, But there was a political climate of the day, just like in our country, everybody has to admit there's a political tension. There was a political tension strong in that day, meaning there was Rome occupying their homeland, a a land that God gave them, and, 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 and everybody was looking for somebody to come along and to set the record straight, to, 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 to get rid of Rome, and, and, and to just set everybody free. They were looking for a military leader that was going to come and set them free. But many of the New Testament writings actually come out of the Sermon on the Mount and, and the New Testament uh, scriptures. And the book of James is one of the ones that references uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, one of the most. The main theme where we're going to pick up today is actually in verse 20. And this is where we kind of ended last week. So if we can open up to Matthew 5, verse 20. We'll pick it up from here. He said, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in the beginning, For I say unto you, right? And uh, Jesus is literally about to share how it actually is. Like, if, if I was on the streets right now, I'd, t- I'd say to somebody, listen, it's about to go down. Like, this is the time it's about to go down. Uh, this phrase would have stopped everybody in their tracks. It's a huge cha- statement because the Pharisees and the scribes were, were at the top of the food chain. Like, there was nowhere else to go. These guys were the premier. They were the best of the best. Um, they were the educated, people that had all the money, people that had all the access. They were at the top of the food chain. Their pride was... was their full adherence to scripture, or, or so it seemed, that, that, that they met every single thing that was in the scriptures. And for us to really understand what, what, this, what, what Jesus is saying here, that your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, you have to understand that there was 600, there is 613 commandments inside the Torah, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. So just so you know, there's 248 dues, right? Well, that's pretty good. I can figure out the dues. I'll do them. And there's 365 don'ts. Um, So what we have is the scribes and the Pharisees, what they did out of that is that the rabbis actually expounded on these things, right? There was a list of rules, and sometimes they didn't know how to follow them. So what they did is, is they started something called the oral traditions. And 
What happens is it actually starts to supersede the actual written law, and I'm going to explain this right now. Um, they actually created 2,711 double-sided parchments of oral traditions. To publish that today is 73 volumes of books with over 6,200 pages of oral traditions. And somebody might say, well, it seems simple, right? I, you don't kind of understand what's going on in the law. You kind of need somebody to explain it. So, so pretty much what they did is they did oral traditions and commentaries, right? Um, but basically, they were writing on how to live out God's law. They took the basic things that God gave, and they said, I'm going to show you how to do it. Literally, they came up for an explanation on everything. And we could spend uh, probably the next five years trying to explain this. As you can imagine, it's 2,000 years later, and there's still people trying to explain um, these 73 volumes of, of books. It's, uh, the two books that, if anybody wants to look this up, come out of the, the Talmud and the Mishnah. Um, and when I say everything, there's actually 39 categories on just keeping the Sabbath. This is how challenging it goes. They didn't want anybody to look in the mirror and pluck a hair out because that's considered plowing. You guys understand that? When I was in Israel um, last time, we're sitting there for coffee. It's on the Sabbath, and everybody's pouring coffee. And I'm like, I was getting these espresso machines. You would go in there, and you press the button. And I went over, and the espresso machine said closed. So I went to the guy, I'm like, why is this closed? He goes, well, it's the Sabbath. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, you can't press a button on the Sabbath. That's working. There, there's still to this day, there's elevators on the Sabbath that just go stop at every floor because you can't press a button. What I'm trying to say is there was a group of people that figured out how to obey God's law 100% to the nth degree what they thought. These are the same group of people that Jesus would call the blind leading the blind and eventually uh, calling them whitewashed tombs. If you look in Matthew 24, Jesus has the sternest warning against the Pharisees. Woe unto you, woe unto you, over and over again. They, they assume that God's law was only concerned about the outwardness of people. Does that sound like anybody in here today? Well, I've got to be honest, sometimes that can be me, right? Sometimes I can only be concerned about the outwardness, but they completely missed the relational aspect of the kingdom of God. Because we forget that God cares about people, just like you and me. Jesus is saying when he drops this bomb on, 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 in verse 20, he's saying that, uh, look at the ones that you think have it all together. Guess what, guys? Righteousness means right standing with God. These people you think it have all together? <laughs> you need so much more than that. The word he uses in here, uh, it's gonna, it might be different in, 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 in your scriptures, but in, in the New King James, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisee, somebody, scriptures might say surpass, that really means a river overflowing its banks, right? It's so much more than you could ever possibly comprehend. It's a major flood. It's, it's, it's impossible to contain it. That's how much more he's talking about. You have to exceed so much more. When God values a person, the value always goes first on the inner man, the heart, the inner righteousness. And as you know, and, and I know, and for people maybe that are new, um, there is no righteous, no, not one. No one has right standing before God in their own effort. They held a whole system of sacrifices that was going to be the only remedy to have contact with God. But to be in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, you must surpass. Jesus also recognizes that eternity is at stake here. He's literally talking about spending an eternity with God. 
And in our human thought, and we'll see this as we go through the progression of the rest of the scriptures, as sinful people, most of us, and if you talk to most people, think, oh, my good deeds are going to get me there. Come on, who hasn't said that? Who hasn't thought it? Maybe that's some people that are still here today. Hey, I'm probably better than Joe Schmo down the street or, or somebody. Isaiah 64 says, we're all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags, which means even our right standing, the things that we can even offer back up to God isn't good enough. That word filthy rags in here literally means used menstrual cloth. It's nothing in compared to who God is in his holiness and his perfection. Jesus just leveled the playing field for a whole group of people. Like, you could hear a pin drop in the room by this point. And then the air conditioner probably kicked on. <laughs> so, uh, like today, many people think that the progression for change was always outward inward. Like, I'll, I'll dress up enough, you know. Uh, I came from the streets of being a heroin act. I remember one time I dressed up real nice and got a haircut and put on a clean jacket to go back into Kensington to hang out with the other people shooting dope. Like, it made no sense. I wanted to go down there to show them how good-looking I was, you know? I was still the same exact person, and, and, and that's the idea that was going on. God's kingdom is always about the inward change going to the outward. In verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, Jesus is going to lay out how righteousness actually works in our daily lives by first shattering any preconceived notions of an individual holiness or individual righteousness back to God. In plain terms, no one can earn their way into favor with God. There is only one way. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Some people say kill. It's not. It's murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Uh, five times we're going to see this saying, you have heard. Most common people didn't know the biblical Hebrew. By this point, there's been two major captivities for 70 years, and during this time, they actually spoke Aramaic. Like Latin became the official, excuse me, official language of the Catholic Church, um, he, biblical Hebrew was only spoken with the educated and people that read the scrolls. Most, uh, some people spoke Greek, but the basic language was Aramaic. So when you say you have heard, it means these people most likely never actually read it, like we talked about earlier. They're hearing the expounding of somebody else's idea based off of a scripture. Uh, the most, rab most rabbis were, were sharing commentaries or thoughts of other rabbis. Many of them quoted two guys, two major guys, Shammai and Hillel. If you want to look up and do a little bit deeper reading, you guys can, 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 can uh, look up these guys, Shammai and Hillel. You'll see these people had two contrasting views on the same set of scriptures. But Jesus is addressing uh, a common misconception by a first addressing a problem. It says, you shall not commit murder. Not, you shall not kill. Uh, killing is different than murder. Murder is preconceived, right? It, it, it's intent. And um, I looked this up. It said common law means murder was defined as killing another human with malice, uh, a forethought. And he's not addressing stuff that happens with animals, but specifically to humans, right? Cain actually goes out and kills Abel, and it becomes the first human murder. And what God said is the blood cried out. 
God heard the blood that was spilled. He's saying, life is so, so precious to me. People are stamped in my image. When, when this type of thing happens, I know about it. Proverbs 6, uh, 16 through 19 says, says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that, said, that shed innocent blood, a heart that defies wicked plans, feet that are swift on running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows disaccord among the brethren. Um, it's not good. We all can understand that, right? So uh, what he's saying is those person is in danger of the judgment. Now, I have a lot of conversations with, about people with judgment. Does anybody know why? Because anytime you bring up judgment, first of all, well, you said you shouldn't judge me, right? That's the first thing. You're not supposed to judge. The Bible says you're not supposed to judge me. Well, we have to understand there's different meanings for those words in Greek. We look it up and we see judgment here. The first thought may say, well, I'm thinking of eternal judgment, and that's not what's talking about here. The actual Greek word is crisis with a K, right? It really means a turning point to an affair. It's not the end, but it's a point leading down a dangerous avenue. This judgment that he's talking about here is a civil judgment amongst your peers. You're in danger of the judgment. The judgment in the law for committing murder was that you were killed as well. Now, inside this, there, there, uh, inside the law, there were uh, exceptions for things like manslaughter. You know, you're hitting, you're cutting stuff with the axe, the axe handle flies off, hits somebody in the head, and kills them. That's called manslaughter. You're not accountable for that. There was a whole system laid out for that. This is per perceived intent against somebody. But most of the rabbis and the Jewish leaders of the day just looked at murder as a civil issue, not necessarily were looking at it as a spiritual issue, because everyone's made in the image of God. Where Jesus takes it to the next level is he hits them with 22, and we're probably going to spend a little bit of time in here. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Same word. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. That hellfire they're talking about, there was a place in Jerusalem that they would throw all the trash, the heap. It continually burned 24-7. When they had this idea of what hell was, there was this continual burning where things were consumed. It was so such a nasty place to be, you were considered unholy even if you went there. So first Jesus says, you have heard, right? We establish what that means. Now he says, I say unto you. So, so the, the, the first of the five series is, you have heard, now he's saying, I say unto you. Jesus is ultimately establishing his authority. Um, and he highlights the root cause here for our challenges. Anger and hatred, we know, leads to murder. James, uh, in, in, in the book of James, actually shows the progressiveness of sin when he says each one is tempted and drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So there's an enticement. There's this idea of, uh, of a baited hook dangled in front of you, right? Everybody knows what that baited hook looks like. There was a commercial a long time ago with a guy with a baited hook with a dollar bill. Anybody see that? He's holding it around. Aha. And there's this idea of this thing enticed right in front of you. Um, he says, and each one is drawn away by his own own desires. How many times have I tried to blame what I've done on somebody else, right? The Word of God says, no, you're drawn away, enticed by your, my own desires, your own desires. 
And he says, when, when, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, when, when, when the train is going and it can't be stopped, it leads, brings forth death. This word raka, although there's not an official translation, it's loosely uh, used that as empty-headed person, right? <laughs> Who here knows an empty-headed person? Like, I think the kind where we would say bonehead, right? Um, blockhead. Uh, the, the idea was worthless, um, and there's a story of a rabbi who was young in his studies and learned and grown and went up to a guy one day, and, and the guy was maybe not the best looking, and said, you know what, you're a rocker, you're a worthless person. Who made you so ugly? And the guy turned around and said, why don't you ask your God who did that? Leveled the playing field right then and there. In danger... Whoever says to his brother, the idea is, who's ever angry with his brother without the cause, and, and we can pretty much mark off without a cause because there is no cause. There might be a cause to be angry, but there's no cause for hatred on top of that. Raka shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool. So, you fool really means rebel or stupid or dull, and it's actually probably the worst thing you can call somebody in, in this day and time. I think today we may have some different words we use that would elevate this to another level, right? Nothing we're going to speak of today. You can just imagine what they are. Um, but if anybody wants to read deeper on a fool, Proverbs 26 becomes the fool chapter. It talks about the danger of calling somebody a fool. Calling someone a fool is the same as cursing at them, cursing them, which is slander, which does what? Murders my brother, right, who I'm supposed to love. The idea is that sinful feelings are not a reason for sinful actions, right? Who here has kids, <laughs> right? You guys get that. You have a little kid. He's running around screaming, you know, whatever. Uh, you guys know what that tension feels like uh, because we have a feeling doesn't necessarily mean it has to turn into an action. The challenge is when it does. And um, on the other side, we have this whole thing called resentment. Whoever has hatred against his brother, it equals murder, like God is cutting people down right away. The big book for Alcoholics Anonymous says resentments is the number one poison. Poisons my heart, my soul, because it breeds in there day in and day out and builds up and builds up. And I spent time praying over this, like, Jesus, why would you go right to murder as the first one? The first thing you're going to talk about, the first command you're going to expound on, you go to murder. And I didn't hear from God, I wish I did, but, but the pressing on my heart was, was that the first thing anybody says is, 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 if you ever ask somebody, do you know God, do you know anything, you know what the first response always is? Well, I haven't murdered anybody, right? And Jesus just lays the playing field. Oh yeah? Have you ever hated somebody? Guess what you did? In the eyes of God, that's considered murder against his creation. And like I said, I, I know what that feels like, and we all know what that feels like, and Jesus is laying the standard here. No one can come back and say, well, I'm not like the lonely criminal. Can I tell you why? I'm a criminal. And I've spent time in jail, and I was a heroin addict and did despicable things, and Jesus Christ radically changed my life when I was at the bottom level. And we have to understand it's not the criminal, it's the sinful, broken heart that has offended a holy God. And every single one of us, 
is in the spot where we need to turn to Christ to be saved. Jesus is saying, think again, my friend. You too are guilty of sin, and you need to be saved. Everybody. There's an interesting prayer we see in Luke 10, uh, starting in 18. It says this, A Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. People that exhort or people that are unjust or adulterers or even this tax collector over here. That's his prayer. Saying, God, thank God I'm not like this guy over here. I'm not pointing at you guys. So. Um, <laughs> he's saying, thank God I'm not like that guy over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all, my, all I possess. And the tax collector standing off far would not even raise his eye to heaven and beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We forget that mercy triumphs over judgment every single time. God's economy is so much different. If we have hatred in our heart towards our brother, it's considered murder. If we're using vulgar or, or curse words or, 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 or things against other people, in God's eyes, that's slander. You know, that, that, that has the same intent as it would to intentionally go and kill, kill someone. He, he's leveling the playing field. He picks up in verse 23 and says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and then remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You know, at, at first glance, it's make it right. Whatever you can do, make it right. And as a matter of fact, God has provided a way for it to be made right. If anybody... Uh, is a student of the word, you, you write down this in your notes if you're taking notes, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, lays out the method for reconciliation in life. He says, moreover, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. And if, if he hears, then you've gained a brother. The idea, if there, was, if there was some type of sin between people, the reconciliation God gave us was me going and sharing that with somebody, one-on-one intimately nobody needs to know like he's not saying go put it on Facebook go tell five friends you know go tell your aunt and uncle the first thing is saying no go to that person one-on-one -on -one. share it with them the second if that person doesn't hear you said bring two or more bring another witness along if not the progression is bring that person to the church bring a bring a bigger body in but the purpose was restoration for the other person the purpose inside this verse is in 23 and 24 was restoration for yourself. God is always concerned about the inner man, the, the heart, because sin breaches my relationship with God. It, it, it's going to alter my, my worship of him. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he love God who he doesn't see? Wow. Wow. I have people right in front of me. God's saying, how can you say you love me? You don't even see me, but the people right in front of you, you know, how are you treating them? In this verse, they, everybody knew what this meant. We, we, we don't understand a lot because he says when you bring your gift to the altar, they're bringing a sacrifice. If you had finances, you're bringing a spotless lamb to the priest. You know what was going to happen to that spotless lamb? It was going to be slaughtered 
It, it shed, it, the, the, the word says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That was the purpose. The purpose was I'm offering up this animal as a sacrifice to take on my sin. So it's kind of ridiculous for me to come offer my sacrifice but not be concerned about the relationships in my life. And what, 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 what Jesus is implying is that he values the horizontal relationships just as much as the vertical relationships. I don't know about you sometimes, like, man, if I can just connect more with you, God, and yes, that's part of it. But he's saying, what if you just love the people that are around you? That's part of it too, right? Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's a common verse because we have an ample opportunity today to, to make right the challenges that has happened. We can do it here and now while we can. And I don't know about you, uh, but I read this and I'm like, oh man, there's like three people I need to go back to and, and say I'm sorry before, like, I, gotta, I gotta go share about this. And, and it's true, this is why we're talking about it. My heart needs to be reconciled with my brother before I wanna come and offer my gift. Like we said, everyone had to bring a sacrifice unto the Lord. Verse 25 says, agree with your adversary quickly. While you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown in prison. Surely, I say unto you, there will be no means to get out of here until you've paid every last penny. These verses um, end up being an illustration for the previous verses that just happened. And it really highlights how we sin against people. And I don't know about you, but we tend to judge people based off their actions. Does anybody do this? I, I, do you know how I know? Because I judge myself based off my intentions. I want to say that again. So I, really, I, I judge people based off their actions, but most of the time I'm judging myself based off my intentions. Here's the deal. I always give myself the benefit of the doubt, right? When it comes, well, I didn't really mean that. You know, they, didn't, they misunderstood what I was saying. The, the, the easy thing is I'm always going to get myself off the hook. I'm going to figure out a way to get myself off the hook, you know? Uh, and here we see in this is like, no, we need to flip the script on that a lot. The basic teaching is that we are to make every effort possible with no delay to make our relationships right with our brother before I even look at the relationship I have with God. It's so, so important. In that, we avoid any type of chastising or correction. What we have during this time is that there's no police, there's no court, there's also zero leniency. So if somebody wanted to take you to court and they had, uh, they had an accusation against you, they had to have two or more witnesses. And what they did is they took it to the court. The court would send officers to your house and they would drag you in. Do you owe this person money? Well, yeah, I do. Okay, well, we throw you in jail. There's no, like, go get a lawyer, none of this other stuff out of it. They just threw you in jail. So you owe somebody money. How are you supposed to pay them back when you're in jail? Like, it's literally not going to happen. You're just going to be staying there for a very, very, very long time. You know, Jesus teaches in this passage, and, and he continues through the rest of the sermon. And What he wants to show us is there's an absolute perfection for God's law. There's a perfect standard. Jesus said, be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard that's set here above and beyond anything else. 
And once we realize that, we have to understand that it's an impossible task for us to meet that on our own. This is why they had the whole sacrificial system. It doesn't make sense uh, to, to try to fulfill the law and think I'm going to be justified in doing that, knowing there was still a sacrificial system that uh, I needed to do to, to cleanse myself of sin. And it was a beautiful system that he set up because we all know what it completely hinged on. It was all a representation of God himself desiring to leave heaven to take on the penalty that, that I deserved. But he took it upon himself that we might have a deeper relationship with him. So he's saying, agree with your adversary quickly. Don't go into a process where you need to draw it out and, and, and try to make it a very, very, very um, complex situation. Because what you don't want is to be delivered up to the judge. What he's saying is, confess, repent, do it. You don't need somebody to drag you down when you've already known you messed up. He literally uses this to shatter self-righteousness of the day. And he comes to a very interesting spot in verse 27. He said, you have heard, it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in her heart. Jesus' second illustration of how righteousness works in daily life has to do with adultery and sexual sin, right? So he hammers away murder, right? And he goes right after sexual sin right away, which is interesting because Jesus is highlighting the deed of adultery and the desire behind it. And he also talks about the deliverance behind it as well. The sixth and seventh commandment, which you can look in uh, Exodus 20 to read more about the Ten Commandments, uh, is, is you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Anger and sexual lust are the two most powerful influences known to mankind. And just so you know, we hear that word lust, right away we think it's bad. The root word for that means desire, right? Like uh, you have the desire when you're parched to drink water. That word desire or lust isn't a bad thing. It's what we turn it into. There's a point that it comes to where it becomes dangerous and there's a no going back phase. And what I would say, it, it, it's, it, it's almost like addiction when, when you teeter on these things that have such a powerful influence on your life. Like it's easy to get into things, hard to get out of. Who, who's figured that out already in life, right? It's easy to get into things, incredibly difficult to get out. Like, like part of my life, I'm trying to figure out how do I unlearn all the bad things I've done in life, you know? So it's easy to get into things, hard to get out, like addiction. Uh, when, when we give ourselves over to things, we're giving the victory to something else that's going to hold control over us. The lie behind it is I can just do it one time, right? I can just do it one time, and then you get a little bit of a feeling good out of it. The benefit for sin is you get all the payment for it up front. Right? There's no lie in saying that that benefit feels good in the moment, whatever I'm trying to please my flesh with. The deal is that's never enough. We, we all know that. It's, it, you always need one more. You, you, know, you always need another drink or another drug or another look or maybe another view of pornography or, 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 or whatever your thing may be. It's always one more. But the word says hell and destruction are never full. Like There's nothing enough. Does that even sound right? No, it doesn't, but there's nothing that's ever going to be able to satisfy my soul in this world 
other than my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, filling my spirit so full I need nothing else. But it's going to be hard for me to feed and to go down that road in relationship with God if I'm still teetering with these other things on the fringe. That's why it says God's a jealous God, just like a relationship, right? Who in their right mind would want their spouse, who they're deeply in love with, to be in a relationship with someone else? Heartbreaking, right? So he talks about this thing of adultery and says, uh, what I thought was like, wow, first he talked about the murder question. What's everybody going to think about this one, right? Um, We're talking about the desire behind it and the deliverance of it. Um, When I was in drug addiction, uh, I was a heroin, IV heroin user. Uh, I I, I smoked crack. I I did everything. I was at the bottom bottom level. but we have to remind each other, so I fed my flesh for a long time. When, when we become a disciple of Jesus Christ, the first thing always starts is dying to self. You understand that? One of the things I do, I'm in a discipleship group with a group of guys. There are six guys in our discipleship group that I have a privilege of working and coaching with. Uh, my I will statement for these past two weeks is my goal is the first thing I get up in the morning when I roll out of bed is to literally hit my knees in the morning. And my prayer every morning has been, God, I'm denying myself today. I'm putting myself in the care of you. I don't want to feed this flesh anymore. That's where I get into trouble, right, whenever I'm doing my will. Uh, I want to deny myself and pick up my cross, just like it says in the Scriptures, but I need to do that right from the beginning, so I'm doing that on my knees. As a believer, my goal is to die to myself daily, meaning I can't walk in this world and claim to be a believer and I'm looking to feed myself from all these outward things. We must absolutely repent because uh, when we look at things like adultery and murder and hatred and anger, we have to understand that appetite leads to action. What I'm feeding my eyes, what I'm feeding my ears is eventually going to lead into action. And we're going to look into uh, some of the Greek behind it. Um, But believe it or not, God loves sex, just so you can hear it from me. In the church, pastors and leaders, we should talk about sex in in an open place. It's a beautiful thing. He created it as an outlet inside the biblical marriage, and anything outside the biblical marriage is sexual sin, according to Scripture. With adultery, any sexual act outside the marriage relationship is sin. We also have to remember, looking at this, that the oral law and tradition gave men an opportunity to become self-righteous. Like I said, I'm always going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. Meaning there was ways that they figured out how to get around this law. Meaning at some point, somebody, you know, during this biblical time could have a few concubines on the side if they weren't Jewish or have a few different wives along the way. Uh, Like there was a way that they were manipulating this law to fit themselves. And, and, and we understand that anything outside the biblical marriage is sexual sin. The modern sexual culture that, that, that's happening today says anything goes, all is good, so why do we even need to deny ourselves and talk about him? And, and we see that today. If anybody spends five minutes on social media or watches anything on the news, we know that that's, that, that's the language for today. What I like to do is to look at Scripture, and I found this passage in Job Uh, verse 31, that really highlights something. Job says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind grind for another, and let another bow over her. 
for that would be wickedness and that would be iniquity deserving of the judgment. And he's talking about eternal judgment here. The message is absolutely clear that the desire for someone else is adultery. The look, the thought, the, ang- the, the language behind that. Jesus is leveling the playing field here because he's talking about the intention and the heart behind every single one of these. Too often we try to kill the cobwebs in our life and forget we need to literally address the spider that's going on. There's a deeper root cause that we need to go after to, to kill it. When I was going through a long-term discipleship program that I came out when I came out of homelessness in prison, and I went into a long-term discipleship program, and one of the classes that everybody had to go through was sexual addiction. And what, what our professor would teach us was that you had a three-second rule. Now I'm going to tell people it's a one-second rule. Three seconds is way too long for anyone. They said you can look for one second, and that was it. Like I had to be trained in an early day on how I was supposed to use my eyes, right? My eyes weren't supposed to be used as as a way to uh, figure out how to get some pleasure back for me, but to glorify God. And this is why I'm saying this, because in verse 28 he says, For I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Anybody has looked, right? Yeah, that's a big one. Wow. That's a real big one, right? Um, Just to kind of clear up the word structure in here, the word I means ego in Greek that he's saying. What Jesus is implying here is that his word is supreme and, and it's greater than the Pharisees' oral tradition. He's saying, I'm setting the record straight. The word look in Greek means blipo. It means continual staring. It just doesn't mean looking at anyone. It means when someone's continually staring, intentional, repeat it, right? When we add it into this phrase to lust for, it, it implies that there's a goal for looking, that there's a deeper purpose, that there's, there's a purpose for this action. It's going to go much more than what it is. And clearly there's an unholy purpose when we look at this verse. It's said that... Um, what I sow in my heart, I have to be very, very careful for. And, and there's an old saying behind this. Sow a thought, reap an action. Anybody heard this? Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a destiny. That's how these things work. Jesus addresses righteousness, murder, adultery. We have to understand we've all been exposed to this at some point. And these were the major things that the, 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 the leaders of the day thought that they had licked right away because there was a, a, a standard for them to meet. He says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin. So as a result of these things, he brings up an analogy. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to, to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to Sin, cut it off, and cast it from you. For there is more profitable for one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Now, who's ready for this one? (laughs) Here's the deal. I don't want to see anybody leaving and going out and cutting off their hand or plucking out their eye. All right, so those of you who had that in mind, you're welcome right away. 
No, but, but there, there's been stories over time, and, and even part of the Calvary Chapel Fellowship, that people have read verses like this and immediately thought, well, I'm going to cut my arm off or my hand off with a bandsaw, or because it says this in a literal, fence, uh, a literal sense, I'm going to literally pluck out my eye. And I, I think when we look in deeper to this, Jesus is obviously speaking figuratively, right? Uh, we, as, as, as Bible-believing Christians, we take the Bible literal unless, it, unless when it tells us not to. And it's telling us not to right here. Uh, it's pretty obvious. But in Jewish culture, the right hand and the right eye were the most dominant because most people were right-handed and most people, uh, the right eye was dominant. It's the person's best instrument, meaning it had the person's best vision and the best hand for the best skills. Jesus' point of view was that I must be willing to give up whatever is possibly necess- whatever is necessary that's going to protect me from evil. Like, are you willing to go the distance to be set free from the sin that you've been in? Are you literally willing to go to distance? Or do we end up being a bunch of people that talks about it and doesn't do anything? But we know this is figurative, and, and, and I would say we just have to learn to deal with sin in a radical way. Like, um, plucking out my eye isn't going to stop my lust issues. So I, I grew up with a guy who, who was blind, and we ended up doing the same thing together, drinking, drugging, chasing after girls, doing the same things together. Just because, just because you might have an absence of, of a certain body part or limb doesn't mean the condition of the heart is, still isn't there. Does that make sense? And, and, but we have to also understand he's saying, listen, you also have to do anything you can to address the root cause. Now, often I do a lot of recovery counseling with people, and I, I, I often talk with people, and they're like, well, maybe I just need to go to Florida to get clean. And I'm like, no. The problem is you take yourself with you. Like, like I'm going down to Florida, I'm going to get clean. Well, listen, it doesn't work that way because you're your own problem. Guess, guess who's my worst problem is? It's me. Wherever I take me, I go with me, right? That's bad. That's not good. Like, like, why would you do that? We have to understand it's the root cause behind it. It's the heart issue behind everything. That's where sin is. The word says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? We need to have a surgeon that's so radical that we look in Ezekiel and he says, no, I'm going to take that heart of stone out of you and I'm going to put a heart of flesh in there and I'm going to breathe my spirit. This is what the living God desires to do with people that repent and turn their life unto Jesus. Plucking out my eye isn't going to change that. But on the other side, if it's the one catalyst I need to be set free and take me down that road, so be it. The best thing that ever happened to me was me ending up in prison. First place I ever found peace, and it helped me get saved. God forbid, God, God forbid I wouldn't ask anybody to go, get, go to prison to find Jesus or, or to develop a relationship with God. It just so happened that was my catalyst to go into it. So mutilation doesn't cleanse the heart, right? So I don't want anybody to say, well, Pastor John said I need to cut off my hand or my arm if I'm doing something. It's not the point behind it. What always helps is cutting off the sin, as the word says, that so easily ensnares us. If you're struggling with anything today, if it's pornography or some type of addiction or hatred in your heart against your brother or sister 
or something, you want to get to the root cause, to the catalyst for that issue. The common thing we talk about in recovery is people, places, and things. And that's what he's leading up to. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on all day and all night. Part of us being set free is spending time becoming students of the word and making sure I'm not spending time with the people that have influenced me negatively. The other people aren't the problem. I am. But putting myself underneath uh, becoming a student of the word of God, that's how I started. I picked up a Bible. Somebody shared the gospel of Jesus Christ to me in a jail cell. And the rest of that has just been a student of the word of God day in and day out. But like we said, removing a catalyst for sin can start the focus on my heart, the wickedness of my heart and the issues I have going on. Um, the main point, I think, when I look at these set of verses we talked about tonight was that even the best of people that we would label the best have wicked intentions in their heart. And I would say, man, this is deflating. You mean Billy Graham was messed up? Guess what? Yeah, he was. Mother Teresa, she was, yeah. She's a sinner just like you and me. With the playing field has been leveled. But it's also a great thing. Because if I don't know that I'm messed up, there's no way I'm going to look for a savior. They say, um, we would always say, uh, I, I love to work with people that has the desperation of a drowning man or woman. Because you're going to do anything to get saved, right? If, if, if I'm drowning, I'm going to look for anything to get a hold of. The idea is that Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because I had a debt I couldn't pay. You guys understand that? Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because I had a debt I couldn't pay. The only answer out of all this is to literally repent and to turn to Jesus. One of the best ways I can do to apply this is to examine Examine myself and go a little bit deeper and go all in. See, his yoke is easy. He desires to be in a much, much deeper relationship with us than we could ever understand. And I think for us as parents, and I'm bringing this up, like uh, my wife just had a baby on December 31st, by the way. So we have like a little newborn at home. And it's changing my perspective. Like I have a daughter who's going to be 14, and I'm not shy to say she's at that age where she's still cute, but like annoying at the same time. Um, and I realize why, because she's just like me, right? And then I realize, well, I guess I'm annoying to myself, you know? Like she's at that age where, where, where she's a reflection of me, and, and I love it, but at the same way, rubs me a little bit. But I see her holding my son, who can't take care of himself at all, has need to be 100% dependent upon something else. And God is saying, man, that's how much I love you. I love you through your annoyingness, <laughs> I, I, through the challenges of life, but I love you so much, you being nothing in this world, I want you to be completely dependent upon me. When I look back at the beginning of this passage, he goes through the blesseds inside the scriptures. Blessed are those that are humble and poor in spirit for Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, and he goes through this entire process. And I'm going to give you my boil down for this real quick as we're getting ready to close. Blessed are those who are messed up and know it, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. For all of us, that's good news. The good news is Jesus Christ, be our Lord and Savior, laid down his life to purchase us back. What I want us to do as a result of this, if you're a born-again believer, I'd like you to leave here tonight and have a passion to share this with five people over the next week. Guess what? Five people you don't know. Maybe five people you know that don't know Jesus. But there's people in each and every one of our lives that don't know God that are going to spend an eternity away from him. Oh my goodness, that should break us right here and right now. We have the best message that's been ever taught. As a result of my life being transformed, the only thing I want to do is to take this back to other people. So what, can, what, what we can do this week is we can repent. Go home tonight if you could spend 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes in reflection to get alone on your knees and ask God to say, God, will you search my heart? Do I have, have I had hatred against my brother? Is there areas I need to confess? Is there things I need to get right or get right with someone else? And have that private time with God. The next step, I would say, use this opportunity that you have to share this with someone else. Practice a 25-second testimony. Guys, you wouldn't believe this. I was so-and-so, and I met Jesus, and my whole life changed. I want you to know that personal freedom. And this is what we get to do as born-again believers. We get to hear God's heart, have it changed in us, and then minister that to other people.